2: regionally speaking, this is really getting very, very heated. You could say that it has been that way ever since the 7th of October, but things are starting to broaden
0: out from Gaza, from Israel. We've heard reports of C-sections being performed with no anesthetic and only a torchlight from a phone to guide procedures.
3: With many people in Israel, they saw UN agencies being very vocal when the bombings of Gaza started, but they feel that they didn't get the same support from the UN. That's why they're feeling resentful right now. That's that's my feeling of it.
4: I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines.
0: The, 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 the
4: terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. No!
3: Like, every place I go, I go run away and I just find bombs and I find dead people. And, like, maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me.
4: (laughs) People telling me that, you know, mostly this is about Hamas, but they're also angry with absolutely everybody.
3: I'm begging the world
1: to bring my baby back home.
4: It's Friday, the 9th of November. In this episode of Battle Lines, I speak to Senior Foreign Correspondent Sophia Yan, Telegraph Global Health Reporter Lilia Seboi, Middle East Correspondent Natalia Vasilieva, and our Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley. Sophia brings us up to date on the major news of the week. Lilia speaks about the devastating plight of Gaza's hospitals. Natalia explains the bad blood between Israel and the UN. And Francis speaks about the history of the now infamous Balfour Declaration. A warning this week that the episode contains graphic language and descriptions that some listeners might find distressing. I started by asking Sophia to round up the most important stories off the past week.
2: On the grounds, this last week, Israel said it managed to split the Gaza Strip in two, with the military claiming that Hamas has lost control over the northern part. Of Gaza. The Israeli military also saying that they've killed several Hamas members, including the head of intelligence and weapons development, a man named Mohsen Abu Zina. The military has also been confident enough in its recent successes that they've brought journalists into Gaza, including our colleague Paul Nuki, to observe the aftermath of fighting. So do take a look at his stories. On the whole, the Israeli bombardment of Gaza has meant that the death toll for Palestinians this week has surpassed 10,000 people. Those are figures coming from the health ministry in Gaza, which does not distinguish between Hamas fighters and civilians. But many humanitarian groups have highlighted very serious concerns over mass civilian casualties, including women and children. Uh, You might remember from headlines over the last week that the United Nations chief, Antonio Guterres, said that Gaza was, quote, becoming a graveyard for children. So in these recent weeks, very quickly, this has become the deadliest Israeli-Palestinian conflict since Israel was established 75 years ago. There are still concerns that remain regarding escalation on Israel's northern border, which is shared with Lebanon, a country home to Hezbollah and Iran-backed militant group. The UK government even withdrew some embassy staff from Lebanon because they're concerned about the situation heating up. And just one last point here, Israeli newspapers are reporting that police are gathering information and evidence of alleged sexual offenses, including rape, by Hamas gunmen during the initial October 7 attack. So a lot, David, of course, is happening every day. And then over the week, it's just the deluded news is really stunning.
4: Well, that's the news from the ground in Gaza and Israel. What about the broader diplomatic picture, Sifir?
2: The U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken wrapped up a four-day trip to the Middle East a couple of days ago. Now, this is the second visit to the region in a month. He's now in Asia. There's just been a meeting of the G7 foreign ministers that concluded in Tokyo. A joint statement was issued that called for humanitarian pauses to allow in aid and to help in the release of hostages. Now, Blinken, when he was in Israel, was pressing for some sort of agreement on this idea of a pause. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he said that Israel's military operations would not let up unless there was a deal to return hostages taken by Hamas. But in more recent days, he's indicated that short pauses might be possible. This came after he spoke with Joe Biden by phone. But again, no agreement on this has been reached. There are growing calls around the world for a ceasefire, which will dominate emergency summits in Saudi Arabia this weekend. We can talk about that in more detail later. But all of this really is putting a lot of pressure on the U.S. to take a much stronger stance, to press Israel to back off. This, of course, because the U.S. is Israel's strongest supporter. So if anyone's got Netanyahu's ear... It's going to be somebody like Blinken, somebody like Biden. Meanwhile, calls to boycott or ban American brands. This is intensifying in the Middle East. We're talking iconic ones like McDonald's, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, because of U.S. support for Israel. We've also seen the targeting of regional bases in Iraq, Turkey, Syria, where there are U.S. troop stations. Some cases, these have been pro-Palestine crowds that oppose the U.S. Some of these one with an attempted drone attack. It's unclear the source. There was a group, a militant group, claiming responsibility. But regionally speaking, this is really getting very, very heated. You could say that it has been that way over the last couple of weeks, ever since the 7th of October. But things are starting to broaden out from Gaza, from Israel.
4: Sophia, you've talked us through a huge number of important stories there. From your perspective, what would you say are really the most significant that we should pay the most attention to, or maybe be the most worried by?
2: The concern of calling for a ceasefire, there's so much that's coming out. So many countries are pushing for this. And again, this weekend in Saudi Arabia, there are going to be meetings of pro-Palestine countries. The idea is to try to come out with a statement. That's what's been reported, to try to come out with some statement that would really, really strongly call for a ceasefire. Because it is becoming a very serious humanitarian crisis. It doesn't look like casualties are, of course, going to stop anytime soon But the fighting still going on. And this need for humanitarian aid is only growing. Just today, there are some 80 nations gathering in Paris to discuss proposals for getting more aid into Gaza. Some of these ideas include a maritime corridor to send supplies by sea, also a floating field hospitals to treat the wounded. So there's a a lot of emergency powwowing going on about how to deal with this situation, immediately trying to call for the ceasefire, trying to institute this with the Israeli military and the Israeli government. And then secondly, a lot of thinking about what the future of the region looks like once fighting stops.
4: So we've got this meeting in Paris. uh, You mentioned as well meetings in Saudi Arabia. What else should we be looking for in the next few days and weeks?
2: Interestingly, the leader of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, is due to give another speech on Saturday. He gave one last week. It was the first time that he spoke since October 7th, the first time he broke a silence. And his speech to a lot of people, to a lot of his followers, seemed to be a bit soft, really. There was concern that Nasrallah might use that moment to really escalate things with Israel on the northern border. And if that were the case, we'd be in a very different situation at this point. Now, the speech that he's giving, the second speech he's giving now on Saturday, is one he gives usually every year. It's for something called Martyrs Day, which Hezbollah likes to mark. And so there's always the chance that he could say something a little bit more fiery. There's also the chance that he won't. We won't know till he opens his mouth and gives these remarks. It'll probably be delivered via video link. He's always under max security. There have been many Israeli assassination attempts on his life. Of course, they are at odds with each other. So that's something to watch because that's also going to happen this weekend. The Iranian president uh, is going to head to Riyadh for these meetings too. And this will be the first time that Ibrahim Raisi is in Saudi Arabia after years of hostilities ended finally when China brokered a deal that was announced in March between Iran and Saudi Arabia.
4: Sophia, just quickly then, I mean, you previewed Nasrallah's speech for us last week and he was giving it basically as we published the podcast. What was your reaction? You mentioned his followers' reactions. What was your reaction to it? Did you find it surprising?
2: Well, he said a lot of the things that you would expect him to say. He spoke for about an hour and a half, and it was a lot of anti-Israel sentiment. There was a lot of anti-U.S. sentiment as well. And honestly, it was a speech that seemed like he could have given at any other time. In that speech, he did say, quote, Israel is weaker than a spider web. And so he made the point that actually what Hezbollah has already done, they have exchanged fire with the Israeli military on the shared border between Israel and Lebanon, Some descriptions of what has happened so far between Hezbollah and the Israeli military is is that it's fairly contained to the border. And that is true. But what Nasrallah said was this is already a success in the sense that it has diverted some of the Israeli military to that northern front for now. So that means the full might of the Israeli military is not in Gaza. That was his point. He said, you know, look. Some of you might think that we're not doing enough, but actually, we have already succeeded in doing what we set out to do. That was his message. And he didn't really get to that point until the very end. He spent most of his 90-minute speech talking about how Hezbollah is in this, quote, real battle with Israel. He was talking about what Hezbollah still has, that they are still reserving various options that could be used later. So he was making clear that there was the possibility of escalation.
4: Well, thank you so much, Sophia. We'll come back to you later for your final thoughts. Of course, let's go to Lilia. Lilia, thank you so much for joining us. You've been looking at the challenges facing Gaza hospitals over the past few weeks. You've written a number of stories for the Telegraph's global global health desk. What have you found?
0: Well, the situation's really dire in hospitals at the moment. We're seeing hospitals being completely overcrowded. This is spurring increase in infectious diseases due to the lack of pure water. They're just getting access to salty water. So it's seeing things like diarrhoea, respiratory infections flying around. Recently, we've even heard reports that wounds are becoming infected with flies. And we're starting to see them being filled with worms, which could obviously have life-threatening consequences. We're also seeing few levels drop incredibly low because Gaza's been completely cut off. The PRCS, who run the ambulances in Gaza, uh, yesterday released a statement saying that Al Quds Hospital has now been forced to curtail most of its operations in a last-ditch attempt to ration fuel. So they shut off their main generator and patients just aren't even receiving minimum care anymore. They're being returned to their makeshift beds on the floor after surgery as all the beds in the wards and corridors are at capacity.
4: Well, this sounds like an incredibly dire situation for the people in the hospitals and for the doctors. Could you talk a little bit to us about how this has impacted women giving birth and, and newborn babies?
0: Well, there's an estimated 50,000 pregnant women living in the territory at the moment, with an average of 160 births expected to occur every day over the next month. We've heard reports of C-sections being performed with no anaesthetic and only a torchlight from a phone to guide procedures. The trauma caused by the constant bombing has also triggered an increase in premature births. Some women are being forced to embark on a terrifying journey to the south just days after giving birth. And in terms of newborn babies, we've heard reports up to three babies are being placed in single incubators due to shortage of space. And when fuel supplies do run out, all these incubators will be forced to shut off and all these children will lose their life. The situation is so bad that parents are writing their children's names on their bodies that they can be identified if their bodies become mutilated by the bombing. And Save the Children recently released a statement saying that just in the first three weeks of this conflict, it surpassed the annual number of children killed across world conflict zones since 2019.
4: We heard Sophia earlier talking about the approximate casualties we think that that are happening, that are occurring in Gaza. Mm -hmm. What, What are you hearing from the hospitals?
0: Well, according to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza, there's been more than 10,500 people killed now, many of them are children. 40% of people in Gaza that have lost their lives are children.
4: What stories have you heard from people on the ground? You've given us an overview there. Would you be able to take us inside any individuals you've spoken to?
0: I've received some videos from doctors on the ground in northern Gaza. One of the doctors, he was walking through the corridors in the hospital. He was looking through windows into... Um, operating rooms and the floors are splattered with blood and on the video you can also see that all the beds are spilling out of wards they're lining the corridors all the surgery rooms are overflowed many patients bodies are bloodied and appear to have lost limbs a shocking number of the beds are also filled with children most of them not accompanied even by a single adult never mind family member just scenes of complete chaos really
4: is there any respite or hope for these people and for the doctors on the horizon at all?
0: I think levels of hope are really dwindling now, especially because fuel's running out. There's not even light in the hospitals. Israel also keep cutting communication within the hospitals. I spoke to one doctor and he said that because they can't access anyone on their phone and there's so many people sheltering there, they can't even find the surgeons that they need for urgent operations. So... That's really drastic. I also spoke to a doctor and he warned that the weather's just started to get cold. And three weeks ago when this started, they didn't even have enough blankets to cover the children, never mind the most critically injured adults. How do Hamas fit into all this? Well, the Israeli Defence Force released footage that they say is evidence that Hamas have their terror metro underneath the largest hospitals in northern Gaza. So they're effectively using these patients as human shields. And this means that the hospitals are no longer protected by humanitarian law. And Israel have also refused to allow fuel into Gaza because they don't want it to get into the hands of Hamas. So this is also massively affecting the levels of aid that are able to reach hospitals.
4: You've been following this story for the past few weeks. What will you be looking at next?
0: Next, we're just trying to get the most up-to-date information that we can from doctors in hospitals on the ground. I think the hospitals are really on their last legs Al-Quds released a statement yesterday saying they've had to turn off their main generator. We're looking at the last few hours now, really. And as Israel are narrowing in in northern Gaza, we're just going to be following that as close as we can.
2: Lily, it's interesting what you've said about many, many hospitals being hit. There were also reports this week of UN facilities where thousands of people were sheltering that were targeted. Can you talk us
0: through what happened? Well, on Saturday, an UNRWA school in the Jabalia refugee camp north of Gaza City was directly hit by strikes. That killed 15 people and injured 70. The agency also said that 160,000 displaced people were sheltering in 57 of its facilities in Gaza City and the north before an evacuation order was issued.
4: Well, thank you so much, Sophia and Lilia. Sophia, can I go to you for your final thoughts first?
2: So for the next few days... In Gaza, Israeli soldiers and Hamas fighters they are engaging on the ground. They're going street by street. So a lot of focus on how this goes, these intense street battles, these heavy losses that both sides are facing. It's always been a good big question mark what it would be like for the Israeli military to go in, because Hamas has had ample time to prepare defenses, including digging these tunnels underground. That generally suggests that Hamas would have the upper hand with Israeli soldiers going into what sounds like would be a bit of a maze, but again this past week we've seen the Israeli military saying that they've been able to split Gaza in half to prevent Hamas from having control at least from the north. So we'll see how that plays out over the next few days. On a diplomatic front, as I mentioned earlier, there are growing calls for ceasefire. UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverly just touching down today. Now today we're taping on Thursday he's in Saudi Arabia to meet with his counterparts in the Middle East to talk about ways to prevent escalation to underline the need to move toward a two-state solution to push for humanitarian aid. How this goes, also very important, because the only points by which aid is able to go into Gaza right now and for people to evacuate is in the south of Gaza, the Rafah border crossing, which goes into Egypt. But it's opening and closing. It's opening It's closing. It's It's not always available to people. So if there were other routes, other corridors by which supplies could be sent in, this could make some difference. A sort of an immediate stopgap to help ease a little bit what the situation is like in Gaza. Another thing to watch for is how Netanyahu's tone might start to change or not change. The Prime Minister of Israel this week declaring that Israel would take control of security in Gaza for an indefinite period. The U.S. though seems to be putting its foot down. Blinken said that Palestinians must govern Gaza when the war ends. This is really the strongest statement from the U.S. so far as to where Washington thinks the red lines might be. So how all this plays out in the next week going forward could have a, a very material impact on what some sort of resolution or temporary conclusion or temporary humanitarian pause might look like. And that really seems to be what's at the top of the agenda right now for the next few days.
4: Thank you so much, Sophia. Lily, would you like the very final words?
0: I think it would be good for our listeners to keep in touch with what the aid organisations are reporting from the ground, like PRCS, they run the ambulance services, and they're just giving really up-to-date insight for updates every day. So I think it would be beneficial to keep up-to-date with them as well.
4: Thank you so much, Lilia. Thank you, Sophia. On Wednesday, I caught up with The Telegraph's Middle East correspondent, Natalia Vasileva, I wanted to understand a bit of the history behind the bad blood between the UN and Israel and some of the latest news stories she's been covering. Here's our conversation. Natalia, thank you so much for your time. For the very first time, I think we've heard some details of Israel's potential post-war strategy and plans for the Gaza Strip. This is coming from Benjamin Netanyahu, Israeli Prime Minister. What did he say and what did you make of it? What do you think it means?
3: Yeah, first, it's quite significant that Netanyahu's comments came just a couple of days after we started hearing from U.S. officials. A lot of them spoke anonymously to American press, who expressed their frustration with the fact that Israel seems to be so preoccupied with its bombing campaign and the ground invasion of Gaza that there appears to be little room as to what happens once the war is over. The day after, as they call it here in Israel, Netanyahu was giving an interview a couple of days ago earlier this week, and when he was asked about the Israel government's plan or any vision for Gaza... Once Israel removes Hamas from there in some shape or form, he said that his idea is that Israel should assume, quote, overall security responsibility over Gaza for an indefinite period, as he pointed out. Now, those remarks were taken by some as sort of an invitation to occupation. And a lot of critics of Israel immediately jumped at the remarks, saying that, you know, Israel is going to occupy it. There will be Israeli boots on the ground. Israel is running the enclave as such. This is still a possibility, but I think if we look at Israel's recent history and different attempts to create a Palestinian state, it could be something quite different. Again, we have a history of the Oslo Accords, as they call it, when Israel and Palestinian leaders agreed on some sort of a temporary solution for the West Bank, and created three zones of joint control, A, B, and C. Only one of them is controlled by the Israeli government directly. One of them is basically jointly run. The other one is run solely by the Palestinian administration. I think there's an understanding wherever you go in Israel that it will be impossible, it will be a very bad idea to try and bring an outright occupation, administration, Israeli mayors, officials on the ground in Gaza. And there needs to be some sort of a government there with local roots. There was suggestion that the Palestinian administration and Ramallah might take over. The problem with that is the fact that the Palestinian administration itself has been quite unpopular in the West Bank and particularly in Gaza, where Hamas captured control in 2007 around the time of corruption scandals in the West Bank. And it's not clear how much appetite there will be on the ground from Gaza's Palestinians for the Palestinian Authority to step in. At the same time, when Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, was in Ramallah the other day meeting with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, President Abbas didn't sound particularly thrilled when Blinken mentioned that Gaza is Palestinian land and Palestinians should take some role in it. Mahmoud Abbas said that there needs to be a broader agreement. And basically, he just indicated that they are not just going to take Gaza and run it just like that.
4: So you've told us about Netanyahu's remarks. You've just come from a briefing with Benny Gantz. Can you tell us about that? Did you hear anything different from Mr. Gantz?
3: Yeah, just to give you a bit of a context, the previous Israeli government has often been described as Israel's most right-wing government in its history. There's a number of notorious figures in the government, including the national security minister, including the minister for national heritage, who last week suggested dropping an atomic bomb on Gaza. And he basically had to be reprimanded by Netanyahu, but he was suspended, but he was never fired from the cabinet. So this is the background for that. We have a very right-wing government that had very little appetite for A Palestinian state as such that that had worked for years to undermine the Palestinian authority in the West Bank. And obviously, it's a very difficult time to try and mend those ties right now. But when the war started, Netanyahu created a coalition government and opposition leaders who previously would be very critical of Netanyahu, they still are. They differ on the most basic approaches to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And one of them is Benny Gantz, the leader of the opposition, who joined the government and set his political differences aside to form a government of unity that would back the Israeli army going into battle. It was interesting to speak to him to see if he had any visions because, obviously, Netanyahu just made those remarks and it sort of started the whole discussion in the Israeli society that, you know, we need to think about what happens next. I mean, obviously, Israeli bombings is, is, is leveling parts of Gaza Hamas commanders have been killed. We don't know how long it will take to decapitate the Hamas leadership in the metaphorical, hopefully, sense of the word. But it was surprising that Benny Gantz himself did not have a clear idea or he was unwilling to offer one. He insisted that Israel needs to focus on the war, that the current stage could take weeks. In a way, he echoed Netanyahu's comments about overall security control over Gaza. He indicated that Israel needs to make sure that it controls what happens in Gaza, that there are no rockets flying to the other side of the border, that people in uh, southern communities can go back to their kibbutzim and live in safety and wouldn't expect another deadly cross-border raid. At the same time, when he was pressed about the actual solution, he insisted that There are different mechanisms on the table. He wouldn't speak specifically about the Palestinian Authority or international mediators. And he basically said that Israel woke up in a new reality on October the 7th, and a lot of previous approaches or ideas were thrown into a disarray. He mentioned that he was briefly head of government before. He mentioned that he was someone who authorized several thousands i think something like 20,000 work permits for Gazas Palestinians for them to come and work in Israel and at the time it was done as a policy of outreach trying to engage locals trying to give them jobs trying to improve economic situations there thinking that maybe that's how the sort of breeding ground for terrorism is not going to get any more fodder if people would have you know regular jobs and I don't want to say this approach didn't work, but what happened is that that attack took everyone by surprise and a lot of people are reviewing their views right now. He wouldn't talk about whether he thought it was the right thing to do to give those permits or not. But I think it's quite indicative that he wouldn't say what Israel is planning right now, because like from the look of it, it looks like no one is prepared to answer this question anymore. And it's not for the lack of trying. Apparently, what's happening on the ground is quite severe. And right now, people in Israel think that it's going to take a long time, and it's probably not worth their time to focus on it right now.
4: Well, let's stay with politics in Australia and zoom out slightly from Israel. We've noticed quite a few stories over the past few weeks of deep disagreements and some really strong language between Israel and Israeli politicians and the United Nations. Can you talk to us about this? What's been happening and where does this antipathy come from? And you know, m- might it be resolved?
3: If I remember correctly, I think it only started a week or two ago. We didn't hear any of the strong language early on in the war. I think it started, obviously, UN, other aid organizations have been very vocal about airstrike on Palestinian civilians, about the fact that it's very difficult to find a safe place in Gaza. The UN has echoed other organizations in, in saying that nowhere is safe in Gaza. One thing that might have irked the Israeli government is the fact that the UN has been backing casualty figures coming in from Gaza's health ministry, which is under control of Hamas because everything else is under control of Hamas. If you remember this hospital bombing where first we heard about hundreds of dead, then that number was continuously revised. It caused a lot of so searching in Israel about how impartial UN is that that UN immediately jumped at those figures, that different UN agencies, including the Agency for Palestinian Refugees, that has a sizable presence in Gaza actually, that they backed those figures unconditionally, the Israeli government insists that Gaza's health ministry, is inflating the figures. The problem right now is that there is a number of local correspondents who are doing an amazing job, risking their lives every day, getting killed every day, their families are getting killed. But it's not easy to operate in those conditions often it's not possible for them to verify if we're talking about 100 people dead or or 20. But a lot of doubt has been cast on Hamas's figures of casualties. I think there was an important piece by the Associated Press that often does quick fact-checking story. And I think what they did recently, they compared the casualty figures that we're receiving from Gaza's health ministry to figures coming out of Gaza's health ministry in previous Israeli airstrikes in recent years, and they compared it to, to the UN figures. And it looked like the UN more or less provided a similar figure, and, and the difference was quite incremental. The UN has been very vocal about the conflict as such in a way that, if I remember correctly, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General, has definitely condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine very early on in no uncertain terms. But the sort of day-to-day reminder about what's going on there, about potential war crimes, about the fact that there are no safe places for serious civilians to hide, I don't think we've seen UN agencies just quite as involved in Ukraine and taking such an active stance. And this is probably what is driving that displeasure on Israel's part.
4: I mean, some of the language is is extraordinary, really. I'm just reading your piece now. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, an Israeli Defense Forces spokesman, said the UN needed to be, quote, part of the solution, not part of the problem, yeah. end quote, in terms of supporting the terrorist groups' control of the region. In an interview with the BBC, he asked why UNICEF had not spoken out for the 30 children held hostage inside Gaza. I mean, are you surprised by this, How, You know, watching the region and living there? Are these kind of stories in the media, the stories you're writing out, particularly surprising for you in your role?
3: I'm not surprised because a lot of people in Israel feel that Not enough attention was given to the hostages, to the victims in the the kibbutz attacks, that they feel that the global attention moved on quite quickly. There's an obvious reason to that, because obviously people in Gaza keep dying, whereas we had a number of casualties. We had those tragic events and we covered them extensively in the first couple of weeks, but... Right now, people in Israel are not under the same level of threat as in Gaza. The plight of hostages has been very, very much publicized. But I think it comes from a deep sense of resentment on the part of Israel that they feel that people in Gaza are offered an oversized attention. From where I'm sitting, I, w- I wouldn't say that, especially if you refer to media. I think there's, a, there's been a lot of attention given to hostages and victims of the Hamas attack. But I would say that it really struck a chord. With many people in Israel that they saw UN agencies, they saw particular figures from UN agencies being very vocal when the bombings of Gaza started, but they didn't see the same language, the same level of outrage when it came to Kibbutzim. There could be different explanations to that, but they feel that they didn't get the same support from the UN. That's why they're feeling resentful right now. That's, That's my feeling of it.
4: I think this is definitely a subject we'll come back to and look at in more detail, because there's a lot going on and a lot of nuance and background I think we need to understand. But let's just talk about one more story, I think. In several Battle Lines episodes, we've talked about the impact of the war on countries in the region. You've been writing about Jordan, and Jordan shares a border with Israel, eastern neighbor, and about a certain airdrop it did to Gaza. Can you tell us what happened and what it might show us about Jordanian and Israeli relations?
3: Jordan, obviously, is Israel's neighbor. It's one of the few countries that Israel has an open land border with. Jordan has been very vocal from the start. They have condemned Israeli airstrikes. They have recalled their ambassador. At the same time, we have not seen them take any active steps to alleviate the suffering of of Gaza's people. Obviously, there's no border between Jordan and Gaza that would allow to do that. But what Jordan did earlier this week was to deliver some medical aid by airdropping it into a hospital in Gaza. The statement came out in the morning and there was a bit of confusion in Israel because no one was quite sure whether it was something that Israel has okayed, whether it was um, coordinated with them because obviously it would be violating Israel's airspace and it would be a plane of a foreign country operating in an area that's under airstrikes. But Israel came forward very quickly to say that that operation was done in coordination with them. Jordan has not commented on that. And in its original remarks, the king of Jordan made no mention of Israel or any role of it. So, It looked like they were very happy to publicize it. They were very happy to show that they were extending a helping hand to Gaza, but they were quite reluctant to admit that this is something that they would not have done without Israel's okay. And apparently, even if they had ideas like that before, they just wouldn't do it unless they got a green light from uh, Israel.
4: Natalia, you mentioned that life in Israel maybe is starting to return to normal potentially for the people that live there. There's fewer rocket strikes, that sort of thing. What's the atmosphere like for you?
3: Yeah, I think the life is definitely beginning to come back to normal. What is different right now is you're starting to see more and more of opposition protests. There were vigils and protests here on Tuesday, which marked exactly one month since the Hamas attack. Last weekend, there were major protests outside the prime minister's residence in Jerusalem and outside Tel Aviv. So it looks like, you know, obviously when the attacks just happened, the whole country rallied together and it looked like there was no room for politics, but it looks like slowly but surely politics might be coming back to Israel.
4: Natalia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. In our last episode, assistant comment editor Francis Durnley sought to provide a brief overview of the core events in over 100 years of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In that segment, he referenced the Balfour Declaration of 1917, a statement issued by the British government during the First World War, expressing support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. To mark the 106th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration in the past week, I sat down with Francis for more detail on the historical context of the Declaration and its influence. I started by asking him about a recent incident in London, which highlights how controversial the Declaration remains to this day.
1: Yes, it was one of those sites that makes a historian pause and reflect. Red graffiti on the Foreign Office spelling out the name of a long-dead Prime Minister preceded by the F-word. Now, I would love to live in a world where people held strong opinions about other lesser known prime ministers, George Canning or Earl Grey, for instance. But the fact is, few people know one or two prime ministers that precede Churchill. So how is it that mild-mannered Arthur Balfour can ignite such strong emotions on both sides, 175 years since his birth? The answer isn't, ironically, his tenure as prime minister, which lasted from 1902 to 1905, But the document he gave his name to when Foreign Secretary in 1917 during the First World War. Now, for the Palestinians and their supporters, the Balfour Declaration is the original sin, a historic wrong which gave land to Jewish settlers that was never theirs to give. For Israelis, by contrast, it is foundational a recognition that Jews were not only deserving of their own state in the land of their forebears, but also were in a position at last to attain one. Now, before I go on, When one hears a word like declaration, one imagines, I think, a huge legal document. The truth is the opposite. In fact, one can read it in full in under 30 seconds. So there you go, David. Do the honours. Foreign
4: Office, November 2nd, 1917. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's Government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine – all the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of
1: the Zionist Federation. Yours, Arthur Balfour. That's it. 67 words. Yet 67 words, many argue, launched the world's most intractable conflict.
4: Now, I know you'll want to get into the historical context properly in a moment, Francis. but before you do, let's recap. Who was Lord Rothschild and why is he the recipient of this
1: letter? Good question. So Lord Rothschild was the leader of the British Jewish community at the time, and it was sent to him in order for him to then send it on to the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland, that being the formal organisation advocating for the creation of a Jewish state. It was understood that he would then pass that on to other federations in other countries. Now, I know I'm going to proceed to your question here. You want to ask about the timing. Why this moment at the height of the First World War? Haven't they got bigger priorities? And they certainly have. And that is the reason for the declaration. Very simply, as I referenced last week, one of the primary motivations was political. It was believed that American Jews would be more supportive of the Allied cause against the central powers and more inclined to join the fight if they made such an expression of support two of the then-President Woodrow Wilson's closest advisers were known to be keen Zionists, the term we use, of course, for those who advocated for the creation of a Jewish homeland. But it wasn't just America. It was hoped it would encourage support among Jews in Russia to keep fighting with the Allies, that country, of course, being in a particularly volatile moment in the throes of the Russian Revolution, and also to encourage divisions within Germany itself, who, of course, Britain was engaged in fighting. It's also intended to preempt calls for an international administration after the war, which Britain was seeking to control as part of the collapsing Ottoman Empire. London also anticipated that the establishment of a pro-British Jewish population in Palestine could serve to safeguard the approaches to the Suez Canal in neighbouring Egypt, thereby securing a crucial communication route to British colonial holdings in India. So this is a very nuanced diplomatic document. So let's go back. Britain is also fighting the Ottoman Empire at the same time. Exactly. So the Ottomans were allied with the central powers, and it's the Ottomans that Lawrence of Arabia was fighting, a man who, as we all know, had great reservations around the idea of Western powers drawing lines on maps in the Middle East. But that's a subject perhaps for another time. The implosion of the Ottoman Empire is hugely relevant to all of this. It's hard to overestimate its significance, actually. Indeed, its decline, which European powers knew they would benefit from, even in the 19th century, was a huge cause of conflict for decades. With its looming defeat in the First World War, Western powers were eager to formally divide up its former territories into spheres of influence so as to avoid another conflict Breaking out in the future. Some of that territory was in the Middle East and included Palestine. Now, when I use the term Palestine, I mean it as a place, a geographical entity, rather than the idea of it being a state. It is a fact, albeit perhaps an uncomfortable one for some, that Palestine has never truly been its own political entity in a sense that historians can recognise. Almost every empire preceding even Alexander the Great in ancient times controlled that territory that we call Palestine. The Ottomans had controlled it for centuries. That's not to say they didn't have a distinct identity, rather just to explain an important nuance. Palestine was never free as such. Only when one acknowledges that can we truly understand what happens next. Britain was thinking of its shorter term war aims, but also its longer term objectives in the Middle East. This was an age where empires needed to determine who controlled where to prevent further eruptions of conflict between great powers. If the Ottomans were gone and British soldiers were in the region, then it was perceived as better for them to take it over than someone else. But that was all in the future. They needed to win the war first. And in that sense, the declaration was a diplomatic tool to try and facilitate that end. In truth, it was probably not that impactful on swaying the Americans or the Russians. At least that's something that's never been clearly established by historians. The Americans did enter the war, but there's little evidence that the declaration played a significant role in that. And the Bolsheviks who had seized power in Russia, despite many of them having Jewish heritage, were more concerned with staying in power which they calculated required them swiftly pulling out of the war. That said, the declaration did lead to a huge increase in popularity for Zionism amongst Jewish communities worldwide and outrage among the Christian and Muslim population of Palestine, who constituted almost 90% of the population. For the latter in particular, it was perceived as being made by a European power over non-European territory, promising it to another foreign group. Whilst there were Jews in Palestine, they were very much a minority.
4: So the war ends in 1918. The Ottoman Empire falls. Britain is one of
1: the victors. This is a world with no UN, nothing like that. What happens next? Well, now we enter the complicated phase of the victorious powers trying to create the diplomatic architecture for a lasting peace, which, of course, Versailles is the most notorious. But there are actually many other treaties that were equally as important as that. Now, out of that process came the British mandate for Palestine that being a League of Nations, the precursor to the UN, as it were, mandate for the British in Palestine and Transjordan, both of which had, of course, been conceded by the Ottoman Empire following its defeat in the war. They'd formally given that away as part of a treaty. So this is not typical imperial colonial activity that Britain is just seizing this and taking over control of Palestine. They were already there, and at least from the perspective of the League of Nations, they were put in charge of it as effective peacekeepers, almost. Sort of
4: proto-UN blue
1: helmets. Exactly, exactly. And in essence, Britain would control the territory on the terms agreed by the League, which crucially included the terms of the Balfour Declaration, namely to allow the establishment of that national home for the Jewish people. But what does that mean in practice? So for many Zionists, that means the creation of a state, but for the British, the wording was deliberately chosen to be ambiguous. It would allow Jewish people to settle in the area, creating a home. But that didn't necessarily equate to them acquiring a state of their own in the long term. Indeed, the wording of the declaration was actually subject to considerable discussion. The intended boundaries of Palestine, as you read out there, were never stated. And the British later confirmed that the words in Palestine in the declaration meant that the Jewish home was not intended to cover all of Palestine. The fact is that the declaration, both ambitious and ambiguous, meant that the dual obligation to the two communities quickly proved to be untenable. Over the decades that followed, the ones that preceded the Second World War, there was huge unrest caused by the Jewish settlers who moved there. And indeed, following the 1936-39 Arab Revolt, declared that Palestine should not actually become a Jewish state. And Britain tried to slow down the Jewish immigration there. And this is a really forgotten moment, I think, in what happens. Jewish paramilitaries in the country then began attacking British soldiers. From 1944 onwards, in opposition to the mandate. And that lasted until 1948, by which time matters had really changed beyond recognition as a result of the Holocaust. And for many, it justified the Zionist cause, namely that the Jewish people were better served and safer to have their own state. Many, many Jewish people, also displaced within Europe by the war, then moved to Israel in those few crucial years. So to try and reduce tensions between these settlers and the Palestinians, the United Nations, which then succeeded the leading nations, came into play after the Second World War, proposed the partition plan in 1947 that would divide Palestine into separate Jewish and Arab states, with Jerusalem under international administration. Britain was quite pleased about this because you can see that they were already having a lot of difficulties controlling the territory. So they were quite relieved to be able to hopefully hand this over to two separate peoples, as it were. But that plan, as we already know, was accepted by Jewish leaders, but outright rejected by Arab leaders, which then triggered the 1948 Arab-Israeli war on the day that the state of Israel was declared, when neighbouring Arab states launched Military campaign. But that's another story. But that gives you the essence, I think, of the complexities and the context of the Balfour Declaration. Thank you very much, Francis.
4: Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine The Latest. This episode of Battlelines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells.